All right, welcome to the joint production, right? You of uh, you talking with Greg, integral stage, and now the the most common repeat offender. It's Layman Pascal. <laughs> Hi, Greg. Love you. Good to be with you. I guess this is uh the sort of the third discussion in our You Talk Pathology trilogy. Right. There's uh, plenty of that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if people haven't been following it, or if they have, I think the first one was sort of a meta-psychological look at normal types of pathology, the professional and colloquial DSM, which oh. one might argue are the, the ways we fail to show up as an integrated, collaboratively sovereign player in the justification space Absolutely. or rest to more simplistic modes. Yep. Now, the second episode explores- Actually, I'll double click on that for just a second. Yeah, yeah. go, okay. go. Uh, so the core neurotic pathology I characterize as a triple negative neurotic loop, okay? Triple negative neurotic loop is negative situation, negative feeling, and then a secondary justificatory affective reaction that's negative on top of that. And then you attack that shit, and then you defend against it, you avoid it, you don't know how to metabolize it, and then it cascades into a vicious cycle. So the triple, so that neurotic yeah. justificatory space in relationship to negative situations and negative feelings, so that's the fucking internalizing conditions like 60% of neurotic pathology. So I'll just say that. The basic general kind of normal pathology. Right, right. And then the second video we did was exploring the ways you might pathologize the normal to try to set a higher standard. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, how could developmental mechanisms and pathways forward it possibly exceed the meaning, health, and capacity of the average normal waking state human in our civilization? Yep. Uh, that was very interesting because you got to handle that very carefully. If you're That's a tricky one. We popped in Nietzsche right away and then we're like, <laughs> we're off and running. <laughs> and now this third one, uh, what I think is the natural question is, what's on the far side of the justificatory system of yep. the rationale laden symbolic order of the culturalized human being? Love and it. when Bruce and I were providing commentary for the elusive eye, I ended up introducing two terms to try to make the clarifications I was thinking about. One was transjustificatory and the other was the end zone. Totally. Um, the end zone is the simpler concept. It's like a, a dock between the ocean and the shore. It's uh -huh. a dock is a super useful thing, keeps you off the rocks, handles all the different kinds of boats and allows them to become close or adjacent to a totally new terrain. Nice. So this end zone, I would think of as the superstructure or the operating system that is just the the generalized integrative pluralistic evolutionary standpoint, however we approach that. Perfect. And it's got to take into its care all the forms of the justification system. Yep. And all the major varieties of collaborative semantic communication and narrative consciousness while stabilizing a special justification system, which is the wisdom story, the yep. ongoing development story. But it also has to secure the possibilities for going radically beyond or outside this whole game board. Totally. into territory that's different even from integral evolution and ensoulment and wisdom cultivation. And that's murky territory. One of the reasons <laughs> it's murky is because there's basic ambiguity about whether we can discuss it at all. Like what's talkable outside the justification system. But all the great esoteric lineages have some sub-discourse where they do discuss things, but they say this is the non-thinkable aspect of the Dharma. It's non-describable. It's somehow radically different than everything else we're talking about. Totally. So the way I would begin to approach the transjustificatory is actually by, let me double pause yeah, yeah. here just so uh, yeah, yeah. so we're we're putting this in you talk language uh, you know just locating ourselves in the coordinates um, so 
the, the culture person plane of existence, the fourth dimension of complexification is seen as a network structurally functionally defined as the network of propositions that afford explicit intersubjective communication amongst us as talking justifying apes uh, and giving us a particular evolutionary structure starting 200,000, whatever, certainly 50,000 years ago and really is the primary medium by which we are interfacing right now. Um, so we just have that as a location. Yeah. The other thing in terms of the docking mechanism, the end zone and transjustificatory, as people know, a year after my TOK sort of insight, stacking of what are these complex adaptive dimensions, oh wait, information processing, communication networks give rise to a new novel complex adaptive plane. Shit, what comes after this justificatory narrative? We certainly see the digital metaverse as one particular version of that. What the docking would be from a, a TOK perspective, this fifth joint point, it's like, okay, there's a, trans, just a, a transition point, a framing in relationship to that. There's also the human sense of how we need to get transjustificatory, meaning like, okay, we're all stuck in our belief worldview systems, but in a global network, we need to be sort of adjacent to those and bounce around in relation. And then the horizon of that, the enlightenment in relationship to that, their nirvana on the other side, et cetera, are all where we're kind of now located. So we just, you know, yeah, be no, in great, parallel great, that great way. Um, uh, I guess all I would say here is um, the way I would approach this is what are the practices that propose to catalyze this shift in people? Yep. Um, what are the kinds of philosophies that critique the basic principles that apply to all sorts of justifications? Totally. And try to get adjacent to that. Yep. Um, and also where and if we can tease apart most of our thinking about wisdom and development from this other radical possibility. Love it. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, uh, where would you start? If you were going to start right now and investigate the trans-justificatory, what do you think are the basic inroads to exploring that basically undescribed terrain? Totally. Well, I'll just say, so uh, let's be clear about where I am in the world in relationship to this, which is essentially in this psyche logos justificatory space. And what I mean by that is I devoted my life, I fell into a logos justificatory problem, which is, what is ju what's justifiable when it comes to the science of psychology? Okay. And the entire, and what is it in terms of its practice? So I am, my whole structure is crucial to be aware in relationship to how I speak, how I come across, where I am in relationship to other wisdom traditions. I'm embedded in the modern empirical natural science tradition. I'm embedded in the Western tradition where propositional knowledge and claims are seen as what's truth. And that I think is deeply limited. I think we're seeing lots of uh, articulations as to why, but I'm embedded in that. And so that's, that's the circle, unlike, say, a Wilbur. I'm, a, I'm embedded in that particular terrain. And then I grow. I find a way to rotate psyche logos so to get coherence and then tie it both to natural science below and then the humanities, theology, et cetera, above. And then all of a sudden that opens that up. So that's where I'm in. The other thing that I would say, get straight to your point, say a year ago, as, as you had known, we dialogued about I found another level, a really a transcendent level through the patterns that I've been building into what I call wisdom energy. And by very definition of that wisdom energy at both uh, the, the initially conceptual and then the fundamental essence of it became a wisdom stack that was both pre and trans justificatory. That is, I basically dropped out of, tapped out of my justificatory propositional knowledge and both was through the top of my skull into the sky and down into my body, some coherent way of being, finding the way, as it were, um, and stop talking. <laughs>
<laughs> in essence. So when I get into this, at least as I come at it, it's like, oh God, what went down, what went up, and what am I adjacent to in this propositional narrative space? Yeah, that's terrific. And it's very difficult to determine in stories like that, which people have had throughout human history, where it's uh, what I was calling the end zone. Like, where is it a new kind of story that modulates the edge of the justification systems? And where is it absolutely stop talking? Where does it go right outside of the ability to describe or tell anything at all? And one of the things that intrigues me the most is this notion I mentioned a minute ago about um, systems that have critiques of all the basic functions of justification in general. Yep. Like one of those is this paradox problem, right? Right, where several of the great esoteric traditions make an explicit argument, and they don't, it's not general in the tradition. They're not all the monks are making this argument. A very small segment of them are making an argument against, say, oppositionality in principle. Yep. Right, that self, other, us, them, discrete, continuous, sense, nonsense, present, absence. That's the problem. Right, you go, well, it's be pretty hard to tell any story, whether it's the narrative individual experience or a collective communicable experience, without basic oppositionality in play. So if you have an argument coming from some people going, we're talking about a way of being that basically exceeds and involves you getting outside of or adjacent to the principle of duality, the principle of things being opposite to each other, that seems like um, those are people who would be providing us some data about the trans justificatory system in general. And so I'm 100% curious, agree. I'll, be, I'll be curious to know what you think are uh, basic features of all justification systems. Okay. But I'm also curious how you relate to this, how getting beyond opposites, so to speak, right. uh, might be one of the major gateways to whatever the other thing is. Totally. And I think that the, uh, we can just say in the context of this, the West buys into essentially almost a dichotomizing opposite, an analysis of the excluded middle, uh, going to arrival at foundational truth claims that are analytically pure. Okay. And then they battle in relationship to this issue. And I think they then overcommit. I think the Eastern structures in the ways in you know, think of most classically the Tao, not the Tao, the Tao that can't be spoken is not that. That immediately is the process by which individuals are, I think, seen beneath and above. Uh, so it, just in relationship to particular spaces, I think first and foremost, we need to see while you're located in a particular Western tradition, like I was, where that analytic truth claim embedded in justification is seen as the shit of what truth is. And then I, I certainly now experience, oh, wow, no, the, um, the truth, the antithesis, the dialectic, the whole, and then the being with, the being present, the witness function, the aware, pure awareness itself, that's a totally different angle in relation. Uh, and the other system is blind to it, and you can get outside of it and around it. And so those are some of the features I would say that I would see it. One of the things that jumps out to me from that is the possibility of a confusion between um, two approaches to getting outside of the stories. Uh, it's a bit like, um, at least metaphorically, gamma waves and alpha waves are mm. on opposite sides of beta waves. Uh -huh, uh -huh, so you could say to someone, you know, uh, examine this Zen koan or just watch the river or whatever it is, and one of them is going to relax down not use so much of their normal human frequency of activity, yep. maybe shift a little bit from the left brain to the right brain in the Ian McGilchrist sense, yep. right? They're going to go, oh, I can let some of that go. Mm -hmm. Now, the other person's going to go, no, the very thing that we were doing in reasoning 
in oppositionality, we're going to jack that up. This is a high performance mode. We are going to solve this koan. I am going to get to the essence of the river until totally. it makes my head explode. Yep. So those are two different approaches. And I've seen it argued out. If you read through the uh, biographies of Zen history, different teachers are claiming the other ones are making mistakes right? One of the, those are the do nothing Zenists. We're doing the Koan work. Don't do the Koan work. Just let it all go. So that intrigues me a great deal because um, like you're saying about the West, there's a tendency, I think, to exaggerate the degree to which we are um, uniquely trapped in the world of Aristotelian reason. Right. And if we could just embrace our intuitive selves, we would get outside of that trap. Now that's very useful but it's not quite the same as getting outside of both the left brain and right brain storytelling into some other mode of functioning entirely. Totally. Totally. Um, and so, right. I'm initially, my developmental narrative is to be trapped inside the solve the Cohen. And I actually feel very fortunate that I landed on a Cohen that people said you couldn't solve while well, frame as the problem of psychology that then actually gets solvable. And then the solution to that actually rotates us, me at least, into a different phase space and then gets perspectival positionality on justification itself. You know? And indeed, that was the first insight, as I think you know, it's 1996, is that I shift really. So people are inside system of justification where most of it is living out the epistemological problem of, fuck, what is justified? Okay, and you can say we go. You go through your life. You build religions. You build belief value systems. You build family rules. These are all okay. We have to figure out what is and ought and why and what's legitimate, and that creates a context. You get into Socrates, and he's reflective, and he's like, "Fuck, there's a lot of bullshit here." <laughs> you know, I don't know that I know anything. You know, and then we build science that says, "Hey, we can build correspondent theory of truth as long as we get outside our subjectivity, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But these are all actually living in the stream of epistemological justification, whereby the problem is seen as well, what is the epistemological legitimacy that is at the highest standard? So you see it with uh, Descartes, like, oh my God, this is... So what I have, what I stumbled into with justification hypothesis was a rotation on the process where it shifted from being inside of it as an epistemological problem to being adjacent to it, to seeing it as an ontological process, okay? So now I became, oh, it's not just the problem of justification is like, what is justifiable? like a philosophical problem, it's like, oh, we are justifying apes. Like that is our ontological nature. So I will say that in relationship to this, the, the UTOC positions itself nicely in a novel way to create a natural science articulation of us inside the wave of the problem that then specifies as its functional origin and helps us analytically to get outside and stare at it from an ontological perspective as opposed to being trapped inside it from an epistemological perspective. I think that's fantastic because I think it gives us a new way, as we're doing right now, it's a new way to talk about um, some of the most radical and transcendental possibilities that have been offered up by experimental human mutants over the course of history. <laughs> of which I consider myself one of them. <laughs> one of the things that intrigues me is uh, what the sort of zero level of justification looks like, right? When we can have elaborate epistemological discussions with each other about what makes sense, but there's also something very basic, like what's added to the ape by accessing this justification system, right? I, I'm totally. not just looking at a tree. I'm looking at a tree, man. Totally. Like I, there's this, uh, it's legit. It's really a tree. It's justified, sanctified, officialized, stamped now, right? It's entered at least minimally into the communicative category. And that comes with a certain force 
uh, a potent, seductive, legitimating quality that's behaviorally useful. Totally. Right? So that's on one side is, is the absolute minimum. I'm not just seeing a thing. I'm seeing a thing. It's somehow open to ju being justified. Right. The whole other end of that specter is the possibility of an ultimate signifier, right? For a lot of people, that's God. That's the uh, anything is justified. This is pure justification. It overrides every other story, right? If God is true, totally. then anything is justified. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, so this is really intriguing to me. Um, I think there's a way of saying then that people who are interested in the transjustificatory are exhibiting some kind of a critique or new relationship to that entire spectrum. So on the one hand, you get people who are saying, um, you have to let go of God to find God. If you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. They say, like, let go even of the ultimate justification signifier. And on the other hand, they're saying it about every minimal one. You don't even know what anything is, man. Right? right? There's a, a breaking from the, the thing that justification adds to experience, even at its most basic level. And I'm really curious, well, first of all, how you see all of that, but what do you think, what is the most basic thing, the, the almost zero level of justification added to the behavioral organism? Beautiful. Okay, so three things there. So first off, what you said about sort of the, the as we became reflective, we get into sort of the base and people wanting to go lower, let go of it all, and then or going, say, meta or finding the ultimate, right? So we, we can keep coming back to people like, okay, drop out or zoom back and con con contain the whole. Uh, so th those systems, people have been driven to those kinds of things. And I feel, and I can empathize with both. Um, when we get into, so let's just review a little bit about what, for people, what the justification systems theory is, okay? Because what it will do is it will help get clear about the ontology, then we'll get back to what the base of it is, okay? So essentially the argument, and I know you've heard this, but I'll just let people do very quickly. The argument basically is this, you and I as hominids of 500,000 years ago are able to sync up much better than other apes, okay? Uh, I can read your attention and intention and we can get a sense of like how we would hunt a Macedon or gather shit together or know how to move as a group from one place to another as we move around the terrain. Um, this social networking capacity gives rise to an implicit intersubjectivity. So we're jamming together and I can hold your sense of who you are and what your attention and intention is to create a shared we space. In fact, the thing called the influence matrix actually shows ways in which we pull our various social roles together, create actually a process dynamic system that actually allows us to be much more flexible than other apes in tracking ourselves and coordinating ourselves. Okay, so that's step one. Step two is then we start to symbolically tag shit through music and other things, antelope there. Um, these are basically just symbolic markers that allow us to sync up. <clears throat> but what happens at the level of the justification systems theory is the idea that propositions are a fundamentally different kind of thing, okay? Uh, the symbolic syntactical proposition now generates a particular kind of claim, a positive factual claim about is and ought, okay? The antelope are over there. And what that means is, is that by generating a positive factual claim, it immediately opens up negative factual space in relation. Maybe they're not, okay? Or on an is, that's an is level. Or there are also rabbits over there, maybe we should go hunt them, okay? So by a, once propositions emerge between individuals, okay, very shortly after that, you get the problem of questions, which is the negative space that operates and quickly cognitive gadgets who, what, why, when, where 
afford you to plug into the negative space and open up this dynamic relation between the positive claim of the proposition and the negative space of the question, okay? And the argument is that this becomes what's called the problem of justification, which basically means as we're gonna take these propositional claims that then take up space, how do we negotiate between them, which is which justifications are we going to then invest in, okay? Then this gives rise to three different problems that are all interconnected. One of which is the truth claim, is it accurate, okay? And then there are two value claims that immediately follow or indebted entangled with that. One is the group level, like is it accurate and good for us? And this could be a dyad, this could be a community. It just goes up to whatever the social level of interaction is around the proposition that people are tending to. And then the proposition holder, whoever it is that's actually generating it and is invested in it at the personal level. So now you have a personal problem, like, okay, I'm attached. To, it's I said the antelope are over there, okay? Now the group has to decide. I'm invested in that. Now the group has to decide is it good. I'm now attached to that. And then there's this accuracy. So you get an accuracy claim, two value investment claims, one personal, one social, okay? And then you get a question answer dynamic that again engages in all sorts of different kinds of uh, opens up all sorts of cognitive complexity about how we're actually going to argue and reason about which justifications are key. What this, the key insight then was what this dynamic did in the human mind that trans that was the fundamental um, elevator from where we were as primates to when we become persons was that when we were confronted with this, we were confronted then with a capacity a left brain largely capacity to hone in on the proposition and analyze its legitimacy. Analyze it both in relationship to its accuracy, analytic legitimacy, and then embed it in relationship to my personal values versus the social system, okay? And what it then predicts in relationship to human consciousness is what should evolve out of this is a bifurcation, really a trifurcation of human consciousness. The trifurcation is there is an embedded, what I call mind to subjective experience that is perspectival and never directly accessible. You can never see my red, okay? So there's completely contained aspects of my mentality that you'll never have. But propositional speech and question answer dynamics means that whatever propositional stuff I have inside my head, you now have direct access to, at least in theory, because propositions go right through your head without changing their informational form, okay? So now my propositions sync up with the explicit intersubjective field in a way my subjective experience doesn't at all, okay? That's a huge fucking great thing at the level that we can share information and fucking problem, okay? Anytime you go through conflicts with other people where everybody doesn't know what's going on, you'll know instantaneously why, this, should I tell this person this? <laughs> How should I frame this? Who wants to know what? You have serious problems of what information you share and how, just enter into any conflict. And anytime you put like a lock on your diary or you say something's confidential, or you say an in-group, you are creating a boundary on the kinds of information you want people to know. And what this says basically is that what's gonna emerge is that there's two transitions that need to happen. One between your subjective conscious experience and your internal narrative, which becomes your private ego. This, you get socialized into this, and this becomes your base level justifier, which is wanders around and generates reasons for what's happening and what is legitimate and why. And your entire socialization process starts about two when you can learn how to talk and then grows throughout. It's like, hey, you are now accountable and responsible to the extent that you can engage in propositional speech 
for what you do. People will tell you, don't do that, do that. We will punish you. That's not acceptable. And you'll have to justify. So you get the private speech relative to the uh, underlying experiential. And there's a filtering dynamic, we call it the Freudian filter, actually. Um, but it's filter between your experiential and private. And then the second filter is the private to public. Like, who am I going to share this to? I call it the Rogerian filter because I'm clinically inclined and people get judgment by others and they have to twist and manipulate what they say their real selves are so that they get approbation and, and avoid punishment in relation. You could also call it a Machiavellian filter because it's also what we use when we lie. Okay. Um, but those are all the, so what the point of it is, is that now this problem of justification and question and answer dynamics adds a whole nother intersubjective complexity that then has to be regulated inside relative to your mind two subjective conscious experience. And then between people, what I call mind three, the per personal ego into the public self or persona. And it's those dynamics that are operative. So when we get into what's the base of justification, the fundamental base of justification is you're a perspectival ape in the world, okay? And then has to run a propositional narrative that's on top of what it is and decipher both what is legitimate from an analytic perspective and what is socially okay from a value perspective. And its task is to be determining that. In fact, there's a whole research of what's called cognitive dissonance, which basically says this egoic shit is trying to maintain a justified state of being. And when it doesn't, it gets all anxious. And so that's what it says, it's equilibrium task. This is, hey, this is not justified relative to my position in the world and social space. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, the way I think about it is you make some kind of transition into um, treating yourself no longer as, as just uh, a body you can recognize, but as a symbolic self. And then things are symbolic. And that's the absolute basic level of justification is just some kind of surplus around things and you start to build things out of that and one of the things you can build out of putting a bunch of those together is propositions i love what you're saying propositions are uniquely exchangeable and therefore we lean into them as super useful because that's one of the things we can get high quality assurance of from other people and there's lots of other information and other people we can't get at very well although we do develop heuristic strategies i've always thought that um you know, uh, and this see happens in domestic arrangements a lot too, right? Unfair accusations and framings force people to have kind of irrational explosions. And that's a way of probing what's going on. And a tribe where people make unfair accusations might end up with more knowledge and more trust than a tribe that doesn't over time. Right. So we have these schemes for probing the other things, but propositions are uniquely useful. Um, several questions come up for me. One is... I get, here's a Wilbur question, right? There's four mm -hmm. quadrants with four values. Now, mm -hmm. sometimes it's described as the big three because Socrates and Plato talk about the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm -hmm. And there's a strong parallel there between accuracy, personal utility, and social utility. Agreed. Mm -hmm. But Socrates also talks about justice, right? Mm -hmm. And on a Wilbur grid, there's also this lower right quadrant about systems. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a real debate about whether that's its own zone or not. If, mm -hmm. if it is its own zone, what's the specific value other than the good, the true, and the beautiful that goes in that zone, right? Is it something like justice? Is it something like parsimony? Like uh -huh. what makes a good system? Yeah. Uh, is it something like leverage is uh -huh. what I've proposed at times. So I'm curious what you think about the idea of an additional 
form of value aside from accuracy, personal and social utility, a, a specific value associated with just how processes run well or not. Totally. Um, yeah. Well, that's back a, to my other question. <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, that's multi-layered. Uh, so here's how I certainly thought about this. So um, definitely the question of accuracy lines up with the question of truth very clearly. And at the level of sort of epistemological institutions, it gets really tied into the question of science. Okay. Um, and for me, then the first bifurcation I want to do is I want to do a science versus sort of humanities broadly defined bifurcation. We're going to put the truth accuracy, and then ultimately sort of integrity, like soundness, honor, clarity uh, of claims in one category. And then I'm going to blend goodness and beauty together over in this other category. So I'll make that bifurcation first, okay? Um, because then when I get into the I and the we, if you want to use the pronounal structure, when goodness is I versus, uh, and beauty we versus beauty we, uh, you know, the beauty, I normally will align beauty with I. Okay, so beauty normally is the I, and goodness is normally the collective well-being of the mythos that we get together and decide what we want to move towards, towards the good in the moral and ethical sense. And when you move good and moral and ethical, then you're going to clearly tie it into a collective. Okay, so for me, if I'm going to do this alignment, which I definitely do when I play around with, I don't necessarily think we should think of it as inevitably precise, uh, that the transcendental values that would match up with these pronouns or whatever frames uh, that Wilbur brings to bear, I think it's useful, um, but I don't know that we should overcommit to that. But that is the way I would do it. So you get this truth claim about what is, uh, definitely at the level of uh, epistemological claims, the external, you know, upper right, if you want to do it in terms of specificity in relation, uh, that certainly works for me. Um, in terms of beauty, in terms of upper left, and then goodness lower left would make sense. You know, what is justice? I mean, you know, that, that to me, you know, Socrates loved that because <laughs> it is a fucking, it's a, it's a curveball. Um, here's what I look to in relationship to, you know, for me, uh, justice stems from value, okay? So if you go to like the United Declaration of Human Rights, the United Declaration of Human Rights is arguably the most consensual document that then legitimizes justice in specific forms. How does it do that? It starts with the argument that humans have dignity, which is another way of basically saying we value individuals as sort of essentially having value. And we can clearly put people on sort of continuums of incremental valuing. Like Hitler did not value the fucking Jews. He treated them with unbelievable, horrible indignation. And you see that in every aspect of their existence. And so coming off World War II, so I'm in 1948, people are like, oh my fucking God, people treat people with indignant value. So to me, actually, that goes into actually beauty and dignity tied together where we have an ultimate value of fundamental aesthetic. We have a sense of what intuitively is good at the level of beauty realness. Um, we'll then back up and say, well, what is good in terms of well-being? And that's a slightly different category. Um, but then to bring together the idea that we then want a systematic societal structure that holds us, holds the I, the we, and the it together in sort of the it's amongst them. I was fine with people that put justice in that category. Uh, it does seem to make sense to me and it resonates. Um, again, depending on how much precision you want to expect uh, from that alignment, but I do like putting justice in that category. That's a fun topic, but I don't want to pursue it too much because it's <laughs> off theme for what we're yeah. discussing. <laughs> True, right. You keep us on theme, Layman. All right, I'll keep us uh, on I'll theme. Be, I'll okay. You're, you're the brilliant questioner here, and I'm just doing my best to field the curveball. <laughs> I, I, from what I've done, I have this tiny, like, automated host brain that's yes. like, how much time do we have? And is this on top? <laughs> right. Good. And if I'm making no fucking sense, obviously slap me upside the head. <laughs> 
Um, this idea of the negative space uh, following a propositional assertion really intrigues me because there's something that gets to this question of where the trans-justificatory is really located. Because I think a lot of people in, in the West who are well-educated, you know, post-1960s, got their hands on a Dao Da Ching, took some acid, saw Salvador Dali and Escher Prince, man, right? They're, they're yep. open to this. There's an Alice in Wonderland universe mm -hmm. where it doesn't have to make sense, man. Okay. But there's a, a, there's a real danger, I think, in conflating some of those basic responses with the possibilities of the truly trans-justificatory. And when you make a statement, there is this implied, right? It's going to rain today, right? And you've opened out prison. Really? That's not what I heard. <laughs> right? All so of a sudden. Right. There's, a, there's a beginning of a chain of justification exchanges between people. But in the moment of that first shift, there's a sense in which you think you were liberated from the definiteness of the left brain assertion that was originally made. Like, says you, right? Yep. <laughs> Now totally. I'm free, but am I really free or am I just holding a spot in, in the justification chain? So that seems like a danger of not understanding how that's different than truly going beyond justification. You're just, you're just at a blank point in the normal justification chain. Totally. If you're stepping out of saying, hey, I'm not a part of this, guess what you just did? <laughs> you looped yourself right back in at a particular level. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this negative space is really interesting to me. I thought about it, interestingly, at a theoretical level for a long time, uh, because that would give rise to actually the justification hypothesis, which is the idea that this uh, private self-reflective narrating ego is actually the mental organ of justification. It's got to solve and be prepared for the questions that would emerge in relationship to the space. So that's how I thought about it and, and why it generates this weird cognitive capacity that makes it so different than other animals. It was philosophically really interesting to me, um, really when I uh, got deeper into uh, Roy Bashkar's critical realism uh, and actually saw the dialectical critical realism, which is basically he's interested in the positive space of claims and doing his philosophical underlaboring about, okay, how do we build bridges between uh, say a post-structuralist view and a natural science view, that's you know critical realism I know you know. And then he shifts into a more justice-oriented uh, element ends up going to meta reality, but fundamentally dialectical critical realism is placing the positive philosophical and um, scientific assertions and social attention in relationship to the possibility of the negative space, right, in essence. Um, and when I saw him do that, and when I learned to do that, I then realized essentially what I'm now just sort of betting back to is like, oh, fuck, this negative space thing's really interesting from a deep philosophical level. I hadn't seen that before Roy Bashkar, um, but Roy Bashkar's shift into dialectical critical realism, I could see is actually basically what I was doing, only I was just more narrowly focused on it in terms of an analytic scientific problem. So um, that's where I sort of got into this, huh, how do we think about adjacencies and relation and backing up from frames and seeing what isn't there to help us understand the whole? That um, development of sophistication to be thinking intercontextually, I think is really important to this whole new space of discourse that's going on. Like it's certainly a big part of what led me to think adjacently about mm. this, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I, mm -hmm. you know, did the universe come from order or chaos? Well, if assuming it came from chaos, you'd have to be able to distinguish that chaos from order, which makes it somewhat orderly. That's the minimal level of order is it's this and not this. So you're never at zero order, but you're never at 100% either. 
You, you, because once you include the negative space in the thing you're thinking about, the absolutes are removed at the ends and you're dealing with some kind of dynamic relational gradient, which is really good. It's not a transition into meaningless vagueness. It's an increase of the possibilities of precision. Amen, brother. That's why when I, especially when I, I mean, I was well positioned to metabolize your brilliant insights along those lines. And it you gave me a resolution to that dynamic in ways that, you know, are still resonating. So I appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about the, um, let's say the, the gradient of selves that occupy the justification space and what might be a little bit before that and what might be a little bit beyond that, right? Mm -hmm. So you were talking about uh, a kind of self that is involved in private speech and then another kind of self that's involved in private to public speech. Mm -hmm. And presumably there's some sub-private speech, you know, wherever totally. lots of lalia comes from <laughs> or whatever is in us where we try to talk to ourselves when we don't quite have socially acquired speech organization. And then on the far end of that, there's something like an embodied trans-narrative observing feeling witness exactly. that goes very well with this end zone thing. Totally. So I'm curious how you think about that. And Beautiful. then also what other kind of self can be beyond that one? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I'll just stay with first with my general psychological modeling here. Okay, so the, the three parts of the human psyche that then emerge is this, there's a private narrator, that's the talking, which gets socialized. You live as a persona with an identity that's justifying out here. And of course you're an ape, you're a primate. And that I originally just called this the experiential self. This is the sub-personal embodiment of being. Um, now I can, with all my work with John on both the on untangling the world not of consciousness and the elusive I, basically, uh, and internalizing both recursive relevance realization as a fundamental principle for the neurocognitive architecture about what it's doing, placing that in context, and then I'm always thinking phylogenetically, evolutionarily over time. So now in terms of let's take this pre-personal uh, primate system, okay, and then think about it as a stack. Uh, so the first thing on, on three different steps, and we'll talk about it as the, uh, well, first, the ground of it then is the dynamic biophysiological bio organismic ground, okay? So we want to then look across just the general uh, layers of biology and think about cells, think about organ systems, think about incredible creatures like fungi and all the remarkable shit that you can do at the biological, physiological, complex, a dynamic, adaptive, cellular living space, Okay. So there's that, it becomes the ground. Uh, and Evan Thompson's like Mind in Life is a good book that says, hey, the lifing, living ground is central. And that's like artificial intelligence is gonna be very questionable. So let's put it in a body, about an organismic body. Then let's jump it up into a base animal which John and I call the base of sentience, okay? And the argument here is, is that inputs and desires essentially and drives to move are gonna to yoke together and we can see very clearly a pleasure pain system, okay? That gasses the animal toward what it wants for pleasure and gasses away from bad shit and puts the brakes on when you're headed towards something bad and you get a pleasure pain base of sentience. So you get an early system that sort of turns on and coordinates. We still don't know the specifics of it, but you can argue that the base of sentience is the first then animal vital layer. So now you're into an animal and it's guiding its behavior as a whole and pleasure and pain serve as the shorthand for the base of that structure. Also your basic body place, how much energy you have, those kinds of issues, okay? Then let's go from the animal to the mammal, all right? The mammal brings a working memory inner mind's eye. And this brings together both the adverbial framing that John talks about of consciousness where you're actually 
pull stuff together and start simulating it across time. And with a little working memory, it's able to operate on it. And adjectival stuff, okay, that is essentially on the screen, what people generally refer to when they call it qualia. So now you have a mammal frame of reference on top of a base of sentience, okay? And then finally, you go into the primate line and get to where I was talking about us in a particular primate lane of 500,000 years ago, and Michael Tomasello's work and what the influence matrix says. And now you get a self other framing where I can intuit what your intuition is, put you and me on a field, project it all out together and feel like, hey, do you know and value me? Do you feel all of this, by the way, is still contained inside a psyche that other animals don't have direct access to. This is all internal, the subject of conscious experience of being. So in terms of the pre-personal organization of the psyche, I see a base of sentience, I see a mammal, I see a, an advanced primate that engaged in all sorts of social complicated stuff, all of which is pre-verbal. So we're not, we're not verbal yet at all, uh, but this is the stack that then a language acquisition device, self-reflecting consciousness interpreter system gets added onto. Okay, so for me, that's kind of in terms of the machinery, what we're dealing with, there's an experiential stack, animal, mammal, primate, an interpretive narrator that then gets added to make us persons on top of that as justifiers. And that dynamic is key to really understand. So I'll pause there and see if there's anything to say about that. Yeah, what I like is uh, bring up this concept of desire. All right. And like mm -hmm. once you've got pleasure, pain, then you've got a framework for making your behavioral investments. Okay. Uh, and then if you enter that into some kind of, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think Lacanian now, right? You're entering into a symbolic register of some kind and you're moving from these drives into desires, uh -huh. right? Which drive is modified by having some kind so, of symbol so. and by being the uh, prerogative of a symbolized self. Yep. And that symbolized self in a way, I this is my impression of the Lacanian system. It's like blocking the light and creating a shadow. There's some constitutive lack around the self that desires. And society helps you learn what to desire. Yep. But your desires will always fail in a sense that they are not meant to succeed completely in getting you satisfied. They're meant to continue your movement through this system. Yep. So that the justifying system moves by symbolized drive as desire uh, in an endless cycle, which Buddha complained about, Schopenhauer complained about, right? Desire is never going to get us there. And that's a very interesting feature of the segue to the trans-justificatory. Totally. Right, which is these specific human beings who looked at it. It's another, if it's a general feature of all justification systems is desire and symbolism and the failure of desire and therefore the perpetuation of desire. When you go, wait a minute, all of that doesn't work. Now a person is standing in a weird in-between space where they might opt out or access something outside of justification systems. Totally. Okay, so this is brilliant and well, really well articulated. I appreciate that. Um, and so here, here's where I am on this in terms of like, uh, in terms of where you talk comes in. So, you know, I have this iQuad coin thing, okay? And, and part of what I'm helping people with the iQuad coin is identifying what I call identification matrix lenses, okay, to see... Um, and I have people put on four lenses. I'm just going to talk about two of them. So two lenses are subjective lenses, okay? The two subjective lenses are then ways to um, interpret your inner conscious experience of being, all right? So what I just laid out, this experiential self with its drives, and then you articulate it in terms of now you have a symbolic 
propositional narrator embedded in a social context, which is dropping all sorts of drives in you and telling you what you should and shouldn't do and giving all sorts of meaning to the world. That's generally how you live through the world. It, the world presents itself to you on the one hand, and I'll come back to this, and then it presents itself to you with all sorts of goodness and badness and clarity or dispute or argumentation and meaning, at least that's relevant to your little egoic place in the social world. So you care about your fucking primate place <laughs> and you care about whether you're justified and you care about your family and you care about shit in the world. That's just goddamn obvious. And then people live through that. The ESP, the ego, the experiential self, and the persona, that's what you live through. When you come to me when I'm in my clinician mode and I ask, hey, how's it going? I'm getting the experiential self, the egoic, and the persona across a developmental narrative, like this is what fucking matters to me, this is what hurt me, et cetera, okay? So that's, and that ESP or self-awareness stream, I mean, self-stream is one stream. But one of the things that's obvious when you really think about it, uh, and this took me a while, I mean, people said this to me a number of times but I didn't just absolutely get it, is that there's this whole other fucking stream of being in the world, like maybe pure awareness, okay? Like if you just reflect, of course, this is an in, a basic elementary insight from the meditators in the Eastern tradition, you just reflect, you're just presented with yourself as a witness function. <laughs> it's like the world just is there. What the fuck? And there's no meaning about it. It's like, I'm not like, oh, is that a computer? Is this a fucking coffee cup? You know, and I have to justify. I'm simply presented now, there is background knowledge that allows me to interpret it as a coffee cup, but my witness function presents me with the world, okay? So what I would say is, is that when we look at our conscious streams, we can, and I can certainly do this now very strongly, I can differentiate my experiential self-model, caring about shit in the world, feeling pleasure and pain, my egoic narrator, oh my God, I better be justified, my persona, hey, am I performing well? Do you guys like me, right? All of that. And then there's being itself. Uh, there's a... a a Jamaican uh, philosophical scholar and, and mystic, he was like, there's I am and am is, okay? That's the way he framed it. Um, my friend Rob Scott, he calls it, uh, you know, sort of thought uh, and pure experience, pure awareness. Isness is what you're embedded in here. Uh, so what I'll just say, we pay attention to our streams of consciousness. You have a self-stream that's grabbing and mattering shit and it's attached to meaning, okay? And a narrating stream that's attached to the narrative version of that and a social stream that's saying, I better manage my place and those fuckers better not betray me and I better care. And then you have this whole other whole stream that is simply presenting itself, that somehow you have a witness function that allows yourself to apprehend uh, the world with no attachment to it at all. And I think that that differentiation is gonna get us quickly then at least into many traditions like, hey, maybe we should pay attention to that. <laughs> There's, uh, that has to be thought with real clarity and to avoid, to avoid certain kinds of pitfalls that might be associated in conflating witness with dissociation and things like that. Yep. Right. And, um, part of it is philosophical. Like we don't, our ancestors spoke in a kind of simplified way where they proposed the witness or pure conscious was essentially an ontological fact, which it may be. But we can also view it as just a procedural function of self-reflection, and you're trying to hold at the surface of the self-reflection, and that may or may not provide some utility for you, totally. because it seems to be something that some of the best exemplar human beings have done, but it also seems to describe some forms of psychosis in which people can't connect with anything. And if you are going to uh, die to the ego and the world, right, if you're going to fall out of the justification system, 
um, that's really a risk because on the one hand, this, I mean, the Sufis describe you as ruined, you, right? You find God by being ruined and in a way you're ruined to the justified value and meaning of yourself and all the things and others. But that's exactly what happens when a person can no longer sustain the justification function oh. and basically just become a behavioral unit. Mm -hmm. And that's a very scary place. If you can't get out of that, um, then you're, yeah, you're, you're basically, you know, uh, some kind of cataleptic dissociative. You've, <laughs> you've broken the ability to be a human being. Right. Now, if we describe this correctly, it should include the distinction between those two things. Totally. And a lot of religious history describe it in a way that you can't really distinguish between those two. I love it. Love it. Um, I think we may be in a position to advance greater specificity in relationship to how we might be clear about that. It goes back to our higher pathology conversation, et cetera. Um, I will say this, so that my all my training in psychotherapy essentially hones me in on the ESP function, meaning it's my what's the ego, what's experiential self, what's the persona, that's where, where does that triple negative neurotic loop being, how do I shine the light in relationship? Virtually all the Eastern, certainly the meditative aspects of the Eastern traditions are getting a hold of that witness functioning and, and doing all sorts of different things with it, but fundamentally elevating that capacity. What, what I haven't really seen is, and Wilbur certainly does this maybe better than anybody else, um, or certainly led the ground for that. And I think there's still a lot of good ground to be um, sort of cleared in relationship to this. Is what is the proper relationship then uh, between this sort of meditative witness function stream that is so clearly identified by the West, East, and then this, especially in the world of psychotherapy, this self stream uh, where you have all these needs and values and stuff like that. And what is the proper relation, proper balance? How do you toggle between them? Because I definitely think psychotherapy is way the hell over here. Oh, we're going to worry, you know, we'll get yourself in true self in relation. And that's what's really important is like they miss the witness function completely. You got other systems that just all in on the witness function and unplugging from the self in a particular kind of way. To me, proper understanding of the relation, proper understanding of the dialectical balance is going to be key uh, to getting this relation right. So another thing that pops up for me where you're saying that is that um, on the one hand, there's a recognition skill. And on the other hand, there's a motivation, right? Like if we're going to talk about people going into a trans justificatory mode or way of being, um, they, there's a capacity to recognize yourself and, and to stand in this witness. There's a capacity to recognize the fact of the justification, right? Whether it's God or just the fact that I, I think the toaster is a toaster, right? I'm, I'm encountering it as justified with a narrative identity, right? So a person can gain this capacity to go, wait a minute, there's something weird going on here. Why do I think it is a toaster? Totally. So then you've got, right? So that's a, a sophistication of the development of the cognitive function. Yep. But then there's, why would a person want to push that, right? Who, who really wants to get to this trans-justificatory space? For some people, it might be very spontaneous and natural. There's some like a ripening and a rotting and a growth, right? The plant naturally moves beyond. For other people, they might go, you know that thing that God has <laughs> of being totally justified? I want that. I want to be Mr. Totes legit in person. <laughs> right. I want to be the source of all validations, Right. right. And that's a classic, you know, easy to imagine a young guy with high recognition skills thinking totally. that move. Climb up that Wilbur stack. <laughs> Get me into right. violent. <laughs> but then there's the risk. He pulls it off. I mean, mm. he pulls it off, but his mode of relating to the world is, well, now I'm going to assemble a court. 
and I'm going to be the divine king, and I'm going to be the justifier and blesser of all things, and I'm completely validated in smashing anyone's ego who comes anywhere near me for their own good, right? So um, how do we how do we negotiate? Because this is a risky move, yeah. right? You, you make a wrong step, you're going to go into either a bad social manifestation of true trans-justificatory wisdom or a pre-justificational mode that only resembles trans-justificatory wisdom. So from a point of view of keeping society and individuals healthy, how do we, how do we adjudicate what's an appropriate mode of who should be doing it when? When is the risk appropriate? Because it is a risk. And when is it too risky for someone? Totally. Um, I mean, these are great pragmatic dynamic participatory questions, you know, um, I, I, you know, here, here's, here's some of the land I've cleared in relationship to this from my vantage point, but it's, I really, I mean, I see some of this is the fundamental task of building the right or whatever emerges and hopefully can contain wherever we're going for the, you know, the trans justificatory mindset will be sorting some of this out uh, in terms of its specifics. Um, so for me, one of the things that I've found is this issue about as people who are able to say, get outside of their egoic justificatory system and get, you know, substantially grounded in what I might call a trans egoic position. Okay. And I would say that I would have experienced that. And we'll just call it the position of the sage. Okay. Sort of like the sage gets a view from above and sees people on their everyday conventional ways of being and is able to at least zoom back enough so that he sees a multiplicity of different perspectives, able to hold them in relation and find some equilibrium there at a meta perspective, okay? And then the one of the things that I would say is we should be very suspicious of competition between the sages itself, okay? So like, are you gonna outsage, you know, who's the greater sage kind of dynamic? Okay, from my vantage point, that is indicative of a regression. If we really think about these things as trans-egoic uh, principles, if all of a sudden you're going to be then like applying the I am the one, I have found enlightenment and those guys are bullshitters over there, come to my justificatory narrative, it seems to me that you really haven't transcended the justificatory egoic process. Um, and so one of the principles that I would definitely look for is for individuals who are essentially attempting to compete for status at the level of sage, which is really potentially diagnostic of somebody who is a pretender. Uh, my heart is with the idea that the, what I might call the age of the tantric patriarchs is gonna give way to some more therapeutically informed mutuality age mm. when it comes to uh, transcendence, developmentalism and uh, spiritual depth. Mm. But I'm also, open to the idea that there's room for things we normally don't like when they're inhabited from a trans-justificatory space. Uh -huh. um, I, in my mind, famously, and <laughs> one of the things I think about a lot is Osho Rajneesh told this story to okay. someone who asked him why gurus argue with each other. Uh -huh. And he said, imagine a town where there were two people who had candy stores and they got into an argument and the only weapons they had at their disposal were candy and they started to throw them at each other. Everybody wins because there's free candy everywhere. <laughs> sure. Love that. Yep. Right. Uh -huh. So there's the post-oppositional vanity right. in a way, right? Sure. And if you were free from these functions, why wouldn't you be free to inhabit functions, even the functions of self-aggrandizement and mm -hmm. competition? Good. Uh, so I'm open to that, even though there's something about that that feels in my heart not the thing we're trying to work on as a civilization at the moment. Totally. I love that. 
at least where I am in relation, that's sort of it's like to contextualize that. And I did go meta justificatory. I went meta justificatory first with sort of like, yeah, how would I then contextualize any of that? And is there any frame that I maintain a boundedness around? And for me, it was value, it was valued states of being um, with what I identified as grounded transcendent values. Grounded transcendent values were for me uh, dignity, um, well being, and integrity. Dignity does correspond to the aesthetic beauty, uh, well-being to goodness uh, and integrity to truth and science. Um, but, I, but I then place, and I have sort of my ultimate justification, notice that I stayed within a particular kind of meta space. I was like, B, no, so now ground, I'm not like necessarily actively justifying. So I'm in the being mode, but B, that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity became my at least particular kind of frame. Uh, so that then I would then say, hey, if the candy battle <laughs> yeah. is operating in a particular way that enhances dignity, well-being, and integrity, fucking A, let them have at it, okay? But if the candy battle isn't, uh, then we have an egoic sage competition that really should be revealed as such uh, and is not operating at the level that people are uh, proclaiming. So for me, that creates the sort of arena valued boundary. It's a little bit like the eudaimonic endpoint for Aristotle um, that says, hmm, I do want to keep some uh, reflective of value to capacity in relationship to the systems that are operating. That, uh, for me, that comes back to the role of the end zone in all of this. Mm, right? You just nice. think there's the justification systems and then there's the trans-justificatory. Then there's no real story that can say what's a better or worse version of the trans-justificatory. But if there's something modulating between them that can intelligently take justification systems into their care and say what versions of the trans-justificatory are useful to the justified, and also to the behavioral organisms, exactly. um, then it can, yeah, I mean, it's really important to have that interface function mm -hmm. in order to get the best out of all these possibilities. I love that. Have you done, in terms of when you think about specific docking functions or given form to those docking functions that would be able to operate that way? Um, do you, have you specified anything in relation? Well, some of them have got to be therapeutic, right? There's got to be a therapeutic lens coming into mm -hmm. this because you can't just have spirituality operating independently of what we know about the psyche and the heart mm -hmm. and its functionings. Mm -hmm. But there are, um, I think, some fairly successful historical cases that show us some of these docking functions. Mm -hmm. Zen comes to mind mm -hmm. uh, in a couple of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Zen has this uh, wonderful whole set of functions, but I really zero in on the koan function because it's proposed as a kind of training mechanism whereby you break or exceed the validation function, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a little puzzle, which is really a piece of dialogue preserved from the past for its specific qualities. And you decide that this piece of dialogue that's been preserved contains the ultimate meaning of all the dharmas <laughs> and you work on it. And you work hard, right? And I, I think of it as kind of like makes your mind into a clitoris, right? Like every yeah. you go through the thing and it strokes it and it strokes it and strokes it. And if you, that happens enough times under the right condition, an explosion. It will flower. <laughs> <laughs> and when this explosion happens, your ability to tell a narrative fails, right? Before mm. you make any move with attention, you've already solved all the problems. Yeah. You're at a, right? You've pre-solved all possible things. So you might as well be the Buddha. You might as well be omniscient. Love Not it. because you have all information, but because the move that would pass through justification space is already solved. You already maxed that out somehow. Totally. So that's the thing. But that's not the end of the story. You're supposed to then go to your master or somebody who's also had this experience mm -hmm. 
and explain it to them and show them your expressions from that state and they can give you feedback. You go for an interview with the Roshi, yes. right? And even people, Hakuin, who's one of my heroes, did this on his own. Mm. But once it happened, he sought out another guy who had mm-hmm. done this before and, and got some feedback. So that, love that. that relationship would be part of the end zone function. Totally. In fact, that, 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 have, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, I'm, so I'll, you know, I'm underdeveloped in this way in, in terms of really my systematic thinking about it. And I backed into some of this because of where my focus was. Um, but like I said, I backed into this wisdom energy function thing. And what you described is, ex- is really brilliantly, I, I just embodied that, I would say. I mean, in terms of like I backed in Zoom, I was doing logo shit. And then all of a sudden it was, it was, it just went through that and all around that. And then everything is in a particular alignment. And then there's a, there's a really the first time I dropped off. I'm very high on this justificatory need thing. I mean, that's where I get a lot of my fucking energy. And that was the first time it really just dissipated, you know? And then after two, three weeks, I mean, I was talking about it stuff, but then the need to come back and then reconsolidate that, um, but still be present in relationship to it, both in terms of there's being present mode. And then there's also, I did want to understand it and then see what other people thought in relation. Um, so anyway, that just resonates really, really well with my own personal experience. I think one of the other things I would imagine that the end zone has is a, a way of, of diversifying and normalizing this function, right? Because if you go, well, here's the Zen path or here's, right, we, we've only got a few of these really great historically elaborated options, but that can seem really dramatically different than the justification systems. And it's proposed as a radical rupture, <laughs> true transcendence, not even just spiritual development, but truly transcendent. Right. Right. And that's important for you to get a sense that there's a difference there, but it can be exaggerated and taking the pressure off that exaggeration, I would see as one of the end zone functions, Nice, looking for it in other places. I mentioned Escher and Dolly. Uh, People are going to like, Hey, have you guys seen paradoxes of meaning before? Right. Right? And to kind of normalize that and, and relax us and put us, I mean, part of it is just being a relaxed, healthy human being confronting this stuff. Somebody has to oversee that. But also the role of the of the absurd and the the gentle, humorous relationship to paradoxes puts us in a condition to be much more relaxed and much more humane in the way we interface with these transcendental functions. Beautiful. In fact, I, yeah, really. I think this is what Ian McGilchrist really is essentially trying to get at with his general mission in terms of getting us out of our commitments uh, to this propositional structure that we're almost imprisoned in, how to get adjacent to them, how to relate to them in particular kinds of ways. Uh, and that I, I, and maybe this moves us into a little bit into what a trans justificatory positionality might be with more, we can specify that maybe a little bit more, but fundamentally for me, getting people to relate to these systems of justification, many of the wisdom traditions from stoicism and many of the psychotherapies and, and holding one's you know, presence and relation in relationship to them rather being trapped by them. I mean, John will talk about reciprocal narrowing in many ways, at the least in the justificatory space, that can be perspectival too, but you're sort of like, you trap, you box in, it's everything, it becomes your total truth. Uh, that clearly loosening that and getting flexible around that psychotherapeutically is really key. I think when we think about where we are culturally in the axial moment, you know, chirotic moment and a new axial age kinds of stuff, getting different relationships to our justification systems is absolutely central to this, uh, to this new uh, way yeah. of being. 
yeah, the, the, the skill sets of self-knowledge and social awareness combined with a particular mood combined with these transjustificatory skills. Yes. And like, I, I was just thinking as you were saying that about like, there's different ways to approach the problem of undoing oppositions since oppositions mm. are a key feature of justification systems. Oh. Right. And you can be like, well, there's no difference between good and evil. And therefore I can interfere with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then there's the sense in which like, okay, if, um, if engagement and disengagement, if freedom and relationship, if self and other are fundamentally not two, mm-hmm. then that's how deeply can I invite that into myself emotionally, right? So then I go, okay, I am somehow the same as the people in my intimate life. I'm somehow the same as other people who are suffering. My heart can break in a mutuality because mutuality is not different than singularity, right? So there's a way of taking up leveraging the trans oppositional form of thinking in a really deep intimate way that not everyone who's proposed trans oppositional thinking has done. Right. So if right. we can if we can make ourselves more capable of taking interpersonal emotional risk and and feeling the melting and the collapse experiences that therapists sort of stand for in the society oh, to some degree i think then we can use that trans oppositionality in a more mutualistic way knowing that mutuality is not different than universal sameness totally no that's a that's exact i mean that's a wonderful way if we were to sort of like take zach stein's notion about well what are we going to actually what's the core principles of education meaning really socialization teacherly authority and handing wisdom down to the next generation what you just articulated there has all many of the key elements that I would want. Um, and what I mean by that is like we and we have this machinery, but we've created a society that I think is very um, vulnerable to corrupting it. So the machinery that we have as these advanced intersubjective primates is to I can see the world from a perspective. And then we know that I have this capacity to drop into your perspective and see there. And then with a little bit of practice, and Thomas Settle talks about this, this is a perspectival capacity. We can move that frame of reference, aspectualize that frame of reference in our mind's eye from a wide variety of different domains, okay? Which means that we have this ability, um, which I don't think other primates would have very well advanced abilities on, is to shift our perspectival, uh, uh, you know, from a subjective to your subjective to then a generalized objective. In fact, this is where we get, of course, science from in general. Um, and then we have a justificatory narrative that's attached to the perspective. But if we help people realize that that's exactly what it is, the perspective aspectualizes, the justification system attaches, and then it narrates. And there are an infinite number of perspectives that can be aspectualizing the system. Well, then all of a sudden, the truth, the universal truth of yours becomes iffy. It becomes partial truth, as, as a Wilbur would say. And then the operative perspective is to be able to hold the multiplicity of the relations of the knower known across a wide variety of different domains. And I think over and over, you see wisdom traditions trying to cultivate that. And I think that if we can cultivate that generally, that's the kind of trans-justificatory capacity uh, that is necessary in this evolving global world. There's a... Um... You know, I, I've been in a bunch of different communities that have different approaches to psychology, and I generally classify them as Eastern and Western in the sense of one's a little more Freudian and one's a little bit more Buddhist. And the Freudian one is, hey, you've got to get in touch with these negative feelings. And the other one's like, hey, that you mean practice them by right. experiencing them. We're like, oh, those are both good arguments. 
And there's something about that that comes into play with this notion of a radical rupture, radical transition or transformation in the human. Because when we think about the transhuman, there's a positive and negative version. There's a Horace and a set of transhumans, right? I think you spoke about this with Zach Stein. Because on the one hand, there's the radical organic consciousness, which braced by wisdom and humility makes us into gods, Mm -hmm. or there's us subsumed into a genetically hacked, digitally spliced matrix overseen by the AI or the new homo deus. Exactly. Right. And one is really dark and the other one is really promising. Mm -hmm. And how do we distinguish between them and the terror of the inhuman version of how do we relate to that? Is that something we touch or is that something we avoid because we don't want to practice it, right? How do we, Nietzsche brought this up a lot huh? with the notion of the so, stare too long into the abyss and the abyss stares back into you. Yeah. But is that a problem or is that something you have to feelingly inspect in order to become the true ultra human rather than one of the subjected last men? Right? Uh, and there's this whole, you know, it's not totally. like, it's not like cops who have to view child pornography as part of their job become pedophiles. Right. They become more clear about the ethical line they're trying to police. So totally. is there a sense in which we have to be willing to feel the truly inhuman possibility, right? The, yep. You know, and all those sci-fi sure. movies where people get the completely black eyes, <laughs> that thing, right? That is that right. something we need to emotionally enfold in order to make sure we don't succumb to that yep. or is that a risk? Because every time we touch it, we become a little bit more like that. <laughs> Beautiful. Right. Right. I mean, you know, certainly for me uh, in the nature of the training and psychotherapy that I in, you know, in or I lean clearly towards awareness and then reflection and adaptive moving in relation as opposed to denial and repression. <laughs> so for me, and I, and by the way, I think that we're uh, the nature of the unfolding of society is stuff that there will be people are going to be looking for technological powers along these transhumanistic lines, and they will be pursuing them uh, regardless of, you know, whatever uh, highbrow ethical reflection and wisdom traditions that are being spouted off on podcasts. You know, this, uh, the system is going to move in that direction. Uh, I think certainly we, we have to encounter that. We have to wonder about that. Uh, certainly there's a siren call there that we need to be clearly uh, conscious of, I think then that gets back to, well, what is the reflective grounding? So for me, I'm very committed. It seems very clear that we need what I would call a wisdom stack. And certainly it's just a balls from the tree of knowledge and relationship. What is a coherent, integrated, pluralistic, flexible system, as opposed to one that's unbelievably experimental and horribly dangerous and can spiral the fuck out of control. Um, so for, you know, at the timelines that we are talking about and necessitating, uh, and Forrest Landry talks about this, the value of planet Earth is, you know, unspeakable, it's priceless, and we don't really know where intelligent life is and things like that. Um, so to be rolling the dice, with which we're doing anyway, to unbelievably transformative shit based on sort of quasi-autistic power-hungry, you know, fantasies, I think we have good reason to be cautious of. <laughs> And I think we should stare into that. And I don't feel like that would be necessarily corrupting. Um, But I think we got to be pretty clear as get back to higher pathology and really the problem of psychology. Like, what the fuck are we, layman? And do we have a basic natural scientific grounding that has an ontology of what we are? If we have that, we'll be better off in answering these goddamn questions about how to stay uh, healthily grounded as opposed to fly off into some insane fantasy. The sense that the world is in peril from a number of different accelerating directions and that we need a fairly large number of people to make a fairly significant psychological advance in order to be able to handle that. 
suggests that we may need to be somewhat risky in, in how we gamble <laughs> with the yep. possibilities of human change. And at the same time, knowing that it's a risk, we have to think about when's this likely to work and when's this likely not to yep. work? Who's ready for this kind of material? And if someone has trans-justificatory practices or ideas, where should they be bringing it forward and where shouldn't they? I, I think of uh, Gurdjieff, who I know a lot about, in, in some of his early teachings, he was doing a really interesting thing with saying, you think you have a self, you don't, right? You think you have will, you don't. You think you reason, you don't. He was problematizing all the basic functions of justification sure. systems. At the back end, you know, in the 1940s, he's saying, I go around my students, they all seem like candidates for lunatic asylums. <laughs> this, this doesn't seem to have worked at all. <laughs> right. Right. Maybe they weren't ready for this. Totally. And could it be worse for someone to access these practices and ideas if they're not ready? On the other hand, because we need this potentially as part of the end zone, um, do we have to gamble on it? Like what? Totally. how do we filter people relative to trans justificatory teachings and practices? Because it is a risk. Totally. Another great question. Uh, no simple answer in relationship to that. Uh, you know, I keep, you know, for the two couple of things. Um, the world is a, and especially the world and its risk future functions is a hyper object that far exceeds my capacity to grasp it. So I don't know what the fuck's actually happening. <laughs> you know, my mood and what I'll specialize in the slice of reality. Oh my God, we're all going to die. And oh my God, the world's a beautiful place and I'm in love and woohoo. You know, it's like, it's like, okay. Uh, yeah, all that's true. Um, so I actually, I, I'm struggle. I don't really know that I have a good frame on what I would consider to be existential risk. Um, really, um, I certainly feel it and I have that and I won't be surprised at the same time. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't happen, whatever. So I don't feel good in myself in terms of really having a grasp of the systemic dynamics that would afford me clarity and the kinds of risks we ought to take. Um, <clears throat> so for me, what I'm doing is like, I keep going back to, and it's called the unified theory of knowledge. Cause like, what the fuck do I know? Okay. It's like, I, I want to really, and I believe that I actually solved a very clear problem. And the problem was, hey, we tried to apply modern empirical natural science to the thing called the psyche, whatever the fuck that was. But it turned out that our metaphysics for the ontology of the psyche, we didn't know. And so we had 6 billion different people come up with really good ideas of aspectualizing slices of it, but we ended up with a chaotic fragmented pluralism. And so then what our my field did was, well, fuck that, you'll never solve that. So just apply the methods, okay? But it turns out that it's just wrong. There were actually not too many. They conflated a number of things. You had to get the organism to the animal at the level of life to mind. You got to get the animal to the primate and the person at the level of mind to culture. And you had to get the objective epistemology to the subjective epistemology, which may be like a tree and coin and you talk. And you got to get all those fucking things right. And then you have to tie together the meta-theoretical insights. And if you do that, you solve this fucking problem. You know, you turn, the, you turn it around. And so for me, the issue is that, you know, what I'm at least trying to do rather than say, oh, here's a vision. This is where we need to go. This is the risk factors that we have, which I have huge amounts of respect. People like Daniel Schmachtenberg or whatever the hell people are doing. I'm enormous amount of respect, way more understanding of that than I. I would say that the Utah thing is, hey, let's go back to the game that this logic game people were playing. <laughs> this fucking logic, natural science game that people were playing. And let's show that there's actually this huge goddamn problem that everybody agreed we didn't know how to solve. And I was just like, know that. And know that we can actually now really solve it. I mean, I can go through the whole goddamn thing. They're like, no, that's where Gestalt is. And no, that's where psychodynamic is. And no, that's where, you know, functionalism is. And it's like, and it all fucking lines up. So all I'll say is from the Utah golden thread, it's like, 
we can fix old fucking problems that were crystal clear bugs in the system. And once we do, we'll get a better operating system. And then I'll network with other people and say, okay, what does it mean about human nature? What does it mean about what kinds of issues, risks we should take? Where the hell are we? And other people can know systemically. But from a Utah perspective, let's fix what we didn't know before, what we now know, and then build off of that, at least as part of the solution to this transition we're making. It seems, it seems obvious in a way that if we had the support of conditions and were able to recognize pathologies and correct them more intelligently and encourage uh, development and complexification along multiple trajectories, then we would be generating people who are more likely to be able to go through some kind of transjustificatory mutation in a way that's good for them and good for the rest of us. Totally. And the, another way of saying that is I believe and this I'll you know come back to this fucking point that I'm making, but I believe we're in a chaotic state of chaotic fragmented pluralism of our knowledge, meaning our propositional justificatory systems, fucking chaotic, they're blown all over the place. They're fragmented, they bounce all the hell around, and they're unbelievably pluralistic. Turns out that the pluralism is good, but the magnitude of the chaos and the fragmentation is bad. And I think the meta-modern sensibility is being like, oh my God, the intersection of modernity and post-modernity explodes into a chaotic fragmentation. We can bring a coherent integration and generate a coherent integrated pluralism, both at the level of sense-making, broadly, and at the level of our psyches. And if we have a coherent integrated pluralism, then all the things that you said about our complexification, our flexibility, our adaptiveness, our pulling shit together so that we're not flying around insanely um, would be much more likely to be realized. In a way, we've been talking about this thing as if it's something that individuals go through, you know, by, by grace or by practice or by temperament or whatever it is. But there's also a tradition of speaking about it relationally, right? So, that you do it in the company of an avatar, a guru, a something, right? That's and that's very human, which is we have an exemplar. We can imprint ourselves and shift our mode by mirroring what they're doing, right? Whether or not we think there's some real transmission or not going yeah. on, there is at the very least engagement and transference and learning and duplication processes going on and a lot of our ancestors said that was the key method ishtaguru bhakti yoga you want to access the supreme you do it through an individual example of a human being who's done that now, regardless maybe of what they've actually attained they stand in for you like kierkegaard's idea of christ stands in yes. for him as the embodied exemplar of the trans justificatory with which you have a relationship and in that relationship you move into that system rather than doing something to yourself 100 there's clearly social risk involved in approaching it that way and a lot of ways that gurus can go astray <laughs> right i mean you know there are multiple issues there so at the level of first the, uh, let's make the general point of, of we want to be very clear about the relational dynamic across multitude of different layers. Uh, first off, I like to think that, you know, you actually know your mother and your father before you know yourself. So as a, as a born primate with, with mirror neurons, attachment system, whatever, you are tracking others, internalizing them and guided by those structures and the internal working models of, it's just, so you're embedded in relationality, whatever the self becomes in many ways is a conglomerate of those relations. And so let's just note that historically. Let's also note that, yeah, I mean, to the extent that individuals are doing this, but without a collective web, you know, whatever the large scale structure is, because the large scale structure is being guided by the societal cultural pressures of contingency and influence and everything else, then that's just going to go. So what we clearly need is a collective consciousness shift 
if this thing is actually going to have any legs. We can't just have individuals. So what that means is, yes, there may be individual seers, and those individual seers can be the legitimate sages that people gather around, and then they potentially internalize. And I believe internalizing the sage, the whole COMMO, metacognitive observers, the view from above, and that view from above is the internalized sage. To be guided by that is a very, very wise thing. And it's relational. I shift into a metacognitive view. I imagine myself as the sage looking down, independent from where my situation is, but related and loving of it. And voila, that's a very, very important perspective. And the other thing that I'll say is that the importance of us to network together and to create this collective and just create a religion that's not a religion that actually has the social religio that pulls us together is both central. And for me, um, over the last three or four years, been unbelievably geist in, meaning spiritual, uh, in my feeling. And what I mean by that is this whole like meta-modern movement. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but when I it came across metamodern, it sunk to my heart right away. And then I learned the artistic or, um, uh, sort of genre of metamodern is called sincere irony. Okay, so sincere. And as soon as I carved those across those two words, I was like, fuck, that whole goddamn garden, this weird thing I was called to do, clearly is just this sincere, I, I had no idea, but it's absolutely a sincere, ironic genre. So I mentioned that in the sense that, how the fuck did that happen, right? How is it that I don't know anything about art? I'm called to do something that feels totally weird relative to my own culture. I back into it and I find myself in a zeitgeist that is happening independent of any consciousness that I was aware of, but get pulled into and now in you know, one note and in a musical system that is playing a particular world that I wasn't conscious of at all. So for me, there's like, well, shit, there's got to be some sort of like collective harmonizing function that's happening somewhere that we better not lose sight of. And indeed, absolutely, that's central for actually going to make large scale change. Uh, one of the things I originally did with the idea of the metaphysics of adjacency was try to argue that pluralism, integralism, and non-duality have something in common when they're mm. intelligently. And what you know, you bring up the metamodern aesthetic of sincere irony, and I think there's something really important about that in terms of, you know, and maybe it's useful for some people to stand for there is no self, anatman, you are not you, right? But you can do the same thing by going. I am myself, wink. <laughs> right? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to almost completely <laughs> show up as this. <laughs> and it's the almostness of that, which means it's not absolutely identified. It's not compressed. It's not a limitation. But nonetheless, it is a responsible engagement function. Right. 100%. Um, so. we, we were talking about, uh, I was thinking about the way you... Um, we're talking about I am versus am is. Mm -hmm. And there's something similar there with, uh, I want to say the self beyond the self and the beyond as the self, maybe. Like, mm, okay. The um, the higher mm -hmm. self, the super jet, mm -hmm. maybe. <laughs> right? There's the sense of whatever the guru embodies that is actually a function we already have in our structure. Is that your term? Actually, I never heard that super jet. Uh, I think it's from Whitehead. Okay, brilliant. Love it. All of a sudden, it tickled my soul. I was like, oh, I haven't heard that one before. I love that. <laughs> anyway, you, you encounter this, this bit of yourself that is the self beyond the self, right. and that's part of this loop because that's always there. And in your relationship to that, you are therefore an eternally evolving, becoming more wise self rather mm -hmm. than I'm a sealed self. I'm actually a self loop that moves yep. through this maximal omega version of what I could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's the wisdom story. In the B 
beyond the wisdom story, there's a sense that that something about that move itself is what the self like. It's not just the self beyond the self. The beyond itself is the self, and the self isn't right. the self at all. And right. of course, you're you're gonna right run right up to the edge of what justification is when you start to talk totally. that way. Uh, that fascinates me. I I can't remember why I brought that up, but uh, I guess well, I, I, th- I mean, for me, that's <laughs> yeah. This is sort of well, this is the. I mean, this is the edges of the trans justificatory. This is where I, I find myself sort of, you know, uh, and uh, Aristotle virtue kind of ethics. I get bounced into the meta space, but I still, like I said, at least where I am in my own development, I still find myself securely located in kind of a traditional wisdom frame, you know, underneath that. But I can see the negative on the outside of that, right? And the desire to zoom back and see individuals who find themselves in that space, you know, dancing brilliantly and beautifully. Uh, so the, is there something very interesting to me about the this dialectic between the zoom back all the way and then the drip off into the abyss and the finding the adjacent space in between those? Yeah, it's a little bit, I think, like the, uh, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him thing. Mm-hmm. Like in one totally. form, the Buddha is your wisest possibility of the ongoing cultivation of the self because the self does slip past itself to become itself and on the other hand there's this thing like if you were to merge with that buddha if you were to kill him by becoming him you would not then see him anywhere that function is alleviated in that moment so these become two different trajectories and yet they're based in a similar mechanics and historically they're very closely united because the trans justificatory argument has almost exclusively been preserved within wisdom traditions which are otherwise talking about a story in which the ongoing development of the human being is possible totally and ultimately, to me, this is the extension of a toggle between myself extended in the trans-egoic all the way up to a wisdom tradition, my experiential egoic persona, oh, wait, we're all that, oh, here's humanity, dignity, well-being, and integrity, and this pure awareness witness function that drops into consciousness and the universe itself and spirituality that is transcendent, and then, you know, nirvana, right? And then it's like, I can back up and toggle, and I certainly lean left, <laughs> in relationship to the ESP, you know, and the trans-egoic wisdom tradition kind of deal. And that's my training though. And I'm a Western, you know, socialized and all that, but I can certainly see the dialectic. And I think that holding that dialectic in adjacent space uh, maybe is a pretty good frame for thinking about what the trans-justificatory position uh, we want to cultivate is. So what what don't we know? What do we still need to figure out about trans-justificatory possibilities, right? If we're looking at that as an important uh, option for human beings potentially very useful something that the end zone takes into account um what do what what do we need to know about it right as a professional thinking about how people function and how to care for people and make them well and give them the maximum possible opportunities what would you want to still know about how that works i mean i i um i'm sorry who was the uh the the sage who was training people and I was like fuck I don't know this went well I'm breaking on on this you gave me oh, that was Gurdjieff yeah Gurdjieff right yeah <laughs> so so I, that that came to my mind because it's sort of like I feel like you know this kind of conversation and others that I've had especially with you in relation um, gets a, a reasonable decent outline of a particular structure in place that feels coherent enough to have grounding and operative principles in relationship to it okay. Um, what I certainly don't know is then the pragmatic implication of actually teaching 
and I, and I don't have really any clue about this. So I'm pure theorist in relationship to this. I don't really see this whole this whole meta modern all the you know like, like uh, Brendan uh, Dempsey you know in terms of like well how do we actually translate this into the real world like what kind of religion that's not a religion that can people actually practice and then what would it actually look like and then how does that iterative process in the individuals, in the communities, in the inter-communities that then emerge, in the digital societies that we're actually building with whatever the fuck economies that are actually operative, whatever educational systems that we have. Um, so for me, what that basically is, I think we have a pretty good, interesting frame. I think there's an emerging intellectual frame, but there's always where the rubber meets the road, the reality is 10 times more complicated than the conversations about it. Uh, and so then the issue is, what does it actually look like on the ground? And then after we implement it, what the fuck don't we know? Uh, so I feel like we've taken the abstraction to a pretty interesting place here. Um, I'd be interested in sort of like, yeah, well, what does it look like if we get together at a retreat and hang out for a while? And if we actually live there for a month or two, <laughs> or, you know. I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of the open questions will be revealed by trying to instantiate something and seeing what goes wrong. Right. And Cause we're in, we've got a fair, we've got a decent outline of what's in the space where, uh, psychology and philosophy speculate their way towards spirituality and some forms of spirituality uh, reach into that space and admit these new critiques. Totally. Once in a while, I get a letter from Andrew Cohen saying, yeah, yeah, this metamodern approach is all well and good, right? And he's been doing actual on the ground teaching for years, uh -huh. Uh -huh. right? And he's pretty open. And he said, uh -huh. but uh -huh. isn't the absolute still the absolute? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'll be like, mm. <laughs> so I, I, maybe I, we're I, adjacent to it. I'm like, you think we're saying, is the absolute <laughs> really real? But like, what we're really saying is, is the absolute really real <laughs> it's no less real than any of these other words right, we've called right. them all into question but they're all still functional with sincere irony totally. so I'm, I'm really intrigued by a space that's opening up between like you say brendan brendan's a great example of a guy who's really uh culturally well versed and open to new philosophical concepts and wondering where that goes in terms of both practice and institutionalization and on the other hand these people who are coming out of a history of fairly open fairly intelligent actual practice and in spiritual institutions going is there something we need to know from the psychologists and the philosophers and in that zone we got a sense of some general outlines a sense of some general risks but we would have to experiment try things see what goes wrong and then solve those problems before we really had something totally so for me, yes, that, that's exactly where we are. And the other thing is, is that trying to consult for those of us that are sort of in this space and can see this new outline, I think we have to figure out how to way to tell people that this new outline is available, you know, because, uh, you know, I'll talk about sort of sort of second enlightenment or whatever. And obviously we're talking about it on podcasts, but it'd be really exciting to figure out how to consolidate the message so that, you know, people outside the little metamodern stoa you know, yeah. integral stage stuff is like, well, fuck, you know, there really is a shift in our knowledge of science, spirituality, understanding that has turned us from, oh, you're a physical reductionist because that's what science says is truth. And we don't know anything from a postmodern view to actually, no, we actually have a coherent, integrated, pluralistic model that maintains a structure and form across a wide variety of different perspectives. And at the same time is rich in its multiplicity. Um, and that is actually something, a ground to now, an intellectual, conceptual ground, to actually now start to try out. So to me, I guess maybe our task, uh, at least me as a theorist and connecting with people like you, is like, 
what actually do we know and how do we tell it to people in a way they could actually digest so that then they'll be justified and be like, hey, we can try this shit out because we actually are in a new space. Um, it's not just, oh, we rediscovered something. I was talking to somebody. He's like, oh, we, do, we don't know anything new. We just rediscovered the old. It's like, actually, I don't feel that way. I really feel like we're at a place where we actually made some real advances. There's new things to be known. Those new things solve some old problems and put us in a position to start this process of trying uh, this new way of being in the world. Yeah, people definitely exaggerate the degree to which it's always been the same, right? The, the, the valid part of that is there are basic intuitions and basic skill sets and practices that we've been using for as long as we can remember that are definitely going to be a part of this. Exactly. That doesn't mean everything we're talking about was always known. Change is actually happening. Totally. And there's a sense in which I think you're right that uh, people don't, there's not a broad sense of what's really going on here. People, right? People are like, oh, I'm an integrally informed spiritually oriented person i just don't understand why john perveke and greg henriquez don't really grasp the true spiritual dimension of this right, right. or vice versa like i'm really into this stuff I, i'm totally down with game b i just don't know why those wackos think they're doing spiritual and religious practice no <laughs> right? you're like isn't. that's that distinction has got to be undermined and it's got to be undermined with an adequate discourse that can include and go beyond both but also with the buildup of a community of like-hearted people who can have these discussions and get this mood flowing that transcends both of them. And I think it's a, that we need to start experiments that can be proof of concept for people. Right. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think that um, you, you articulated, if we go back to the whole Jim Brutt and Game B and Jordan Paul and my conversations with them and you know, it was on Rebel Wisdom with other people and things like that. It's like, hey, they got together, they had the Game B and they had a, you know, um, Jim Rutt with his sort of atheistic, I grab my gun if somebody says metaphysics, scientism, you know, with battling with the spiritualists. And then you had people that were, you know, oh my God, it all has to come from the self. And there are other people like, no, it's social engineering. And that system sort of dissipates and breaks off. Um, you know, I told Jim and I, and I really believe this is like, um, it was that those conferences were 20 miles away from my home, ironically. And I drove by them every day. And I was like, actually, uh, you know, I don't know if it would have solved all the problems, but the, the you talk and tree of knowledge system it can be brought to bear to bridge what appears to be, uh, you know, old modernist scientists and spirituality kinds of chasms that actually get rotated and now put in right relation. Uh, and that's really the point is to me, at least on an intellectual level, we don't, we can have a coherent integrated pluralism without fundamentally like, oh, we already know this or, oh, you know, that's new age woo. It's like, no, there's actually ways to know it through this that then get back to this and then create this space. Uh, and if we can get people with that frame and understanding and language enough, and then this playing it out and see what it looks like on the ground, well, then I think we'll start to have a real movement. Yeah, I think if we can make a little more clear in a way that's responsible to the different backgrounds and exactly <clears throat> that an integrative pluralism is also a transcendental pluralism. Yeah. Uh, and have people who are, I, I think we need a lot more people who are good at talking to everybody in this space, right? If I talk to Jim Rutt, I'm like, wow, this is a guy who loves the Bible, constantly rereads it. He's, you know, pro-meditation, right? You're like, you have to have a certain way of talking to him to elicit those things. Totally. Otherwise, it sounds like he's standing against everything that you stand for. Totally. So we, we, there needs to be a core, somehow, liminal web cabal of people who are very linguistically flexible and have the right emotional temperaments to start saying all these people are engaged in the same project and we feel it and we justify it and that, i think that anchors it 
and out of that's really going to help us try to move forward in these projects and discourses. I mean, what is culture, but basically that, and we're building that culture and then people are seeing it. And then, you know, I'm doing what I can to connect uh, and as are you and all that. And so maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're doing it right now. I love you, Greg. <laughs> I love you, Layman. Every time you warm my heart. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I'd love to keep talking to you, but also that feels like a very nice period. That feels like a pretty good. Yeah, I think that, I think I think we rounded that out, guys, nicely. Climax there, pretty well. Yeah, maybe maybe we want to tease the concept we've been talking about about uh, you doing a psychological profile of me live on a video stream. I would. That'll be fun. That that would be definitely. That's the way I have part four basically lined up, where we can show what it would look like if Layman came into the office right. for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Let's get really personal about this pathology stuff. Right. Exactly. What does it look like up close and personal? Or, or given what I was saying, maybe we'll reverse it and you'll start asking me questions about how my life is. <laughs> I, uh, I was on Scout Leader uh, Wiley's uh, podcast yesterday, and I, at one point I said, like, I've considered the possibility that I might be a sociopath, but I don't feel much about that, so it's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, you'll notice I'll make a little check in my little book yeah, there when, when you answer that, down. okay? I was like, hey, okay, if I make a little note about that, you'll get a sense. <laughs> Well, fantastic, um, Greg. And I really think the notion of justification systems coupled with these notions of end zone and transjustificatory approaches, it gives us a new way to begin talking about something that's been um, a sub-discourse within spirituality and wisdom tradition history all along. And I think it, it opens up new ways of languaging and questioning and probing it, which is really important because we need to know more about how it works in different contexts and how to avoid the pitfalls of it without in any way um, marginalizing it because it is the central triumphant possibility of the human being. <laughs> totally. No, I, I really, I mean, I was looking forward to this conversation and I feel uh, very completed by it, friend, seriously. And as you know, as I listened to your commentary on the elusive eye, I was literally walking and I hit pause as soon as I heard you say transjustificatory and a similar reaction to the end zone concept. I was like, holy fuck, Lame and I have got to talk about this. Because <laughs> these, I had not had these concepts in my head, but basically, you know, I'm in there and then you were like, you're, by, you're behind me. It's like, oh, well, fuck, that goes there and that goes there. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, that's really brilliant. Uh, so this is wonderful. I really appreciate that complimentary. Amen. <laughs> All right, man. Well, until next time when you're when you're in the clinic yep. room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. All righty, friend. Take care. <laughs>